Well, good morning, good evening, or hello, everyone, and welcome to a beautiful new episode of Left Porch. Today it is a bit special since we are living through very troublesome, anxiety-driving, and caffeine-inducted times. Some of us have developed stronger addictions to caffeine during those, let's say, particular election during this particular election, especially when I couldn't fall asleep. That was my that was my just my past two days. I was just anxiously riding through elections, trying to make a trying to make sense of what was happening and trying to understand whether or not I, as an international student, would be able to return or not to the United States. So there is a lot of stake here. But I'm not that knowledgeable about this. I'm stuck, I come from Romania, I study in the United States, and I'm, I want to play the dumb kid in the playground, as I told my friends tonight, that you're going to meet very soon, and to get to know more about politics and how they look like coming from a very left perspective. So would you guys like to introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you're calling right now and how you're feeling? Yeah, um, my, my name is Micah, and I'm calling from Portland, Maine. I'm Livia, also calling from Portland, Maine. And I'll round out the Portland crowd. I'm Nathan, also in Portland, Maine. <laughs> oh my God, that's lovely. That's lovely. So why don't we, we break it off and actually start by asking how did the election look like in Portland, Maine? In like your small community, maybe in your household unit or amongst your friends? Before we jump in, I think we should just name what time it is because we might have a rapidly developing results during the next couple of okay. hours. So we're at 2.30 on Thursday, November 5th. So uh, if any of our takes seem dated by the time you listen to this, we apologize. As it stands, I believe, um, according to New York Times, Biden's got 253 um, points up to Trump's 214 is that is that is that correct and the ap has called it 264 um just because of the difference in for arizona but that's that's as it stands we'll update if we see anything while the podcast happens um sweet so yeah what what happened in in portland maine on this election libby do you want to kick us off on that totally um yeah i think this is you know when we're thinking about election day, there's obviously so many different layers, the national state and Senate races, and then some hyper local races. Um, and we had some huge victories here in Portland. And I think in, in these dark times, it's really important to celebrate the victories as they come. Um, so Portland, Maine passed a ban on facial surveillance, a green new deal for the city, rent control what? for the city and a $15 minimum wage for the city. Um, and this was headed up by People's First Portland, which was a coalition of unions and other activists in the city. Um, and they were outspent 30 to 1, I believe, and still managed to pass all these. And so this really shows, you know, the power of people power over money. They knocked on a lot of doors. Um, you know, the the groups against these uh, these bills had like fancy signs and they had all these hand painted signs all over the city of Portland. Um, yeah, and these are really big victories. The entire city council, except for Pius Ali, um, came out against these these bills, and yet they still pass. And we elected someone new to the city council who is committed to these policies and will work to get them through, and that's April Fournier. And then also um, Yusuf Yusuf, who I don't know a ton about but seems um, pretty awesome, was elected to school board. So definitely some great things happening locally. Yeah, I believe there was one like single landlord in Portland who raised like a huge, huge, huge sum of money uh, to put it against all of these props um, and like tried to evade 
like people recognizing that it was just one person by using different uh like different names for different donations to this like anti prop a prop b campaign um but like there was a couple big like organizing groups in portland that exposed that and who knows i don't know if that contributed to the success or not but clearly there was like a there was like huge there was huge excitement about them yeah, and importantly on what on what Livy was saying about city council and the mayor as well, um, uh, coming out against all of these ballot measures. You know, this was not a party line vote. It was not a a Democrat and Republican type of deal. It was both major parties probably against uh, all of the ballot measures, and they they still prevailed, which we saw actually across the country um, in in a few different races. There was a similar thing actually in Florida. Neither Florida passed a fifteen dollar minimum wage. Neither the Republicans nor the Democrats were in favor of it. They were both against. And it was actually just independent. In that case, it was actually, I think, a one wealthy guy was actually able to bankroll it. But independent campaign, again, without the support of either of the two major parties. Whoa. So so you're actually telling me that like a grassroots movement, basically, like people just coming together, were able to go against the party policy locally and actually fight and get those demands passed. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and what's what Nathan, what you were saying was that the opposite was more true in cases that were handily blue in the general election, right? Like in, I think Massachusetts was one example that actually put ranked choice voting on the ballot went like whatever, 66 or 67 towards Biden as the, as it would. Um, but like handily rejected a progressive voting rights bill in California. What was the situation in California? Well, California had all of these propositions. Um, I think they were numbered something 14 through 25 or something. And um, most of the, they, there were a couple that would have been provided some really great material benefits to working people. Um, there was one, Prop 22, uh, had to do with Uber and Lyft and would have, they were all worded really weirdly, but the, the upshot of it was it would have prevented Uber and Lyft from classifying their drivers as contractors. They would have to be classified as employees and therefore they would be entitled to minimum wage. Uh, and other benefits um, that the state already acquires with different employers. But Californian voters seeing themselves, I guess, more as Uber riders than, uh, than as workers decided to vote um, against the proposition. We saw similar things where they reject, they, the, the state legislature actually had passed measures abolishing cash bail and California decided to bring it back. Uh, they rejected new rent control um, uh, uh, measures. So they said no more new rent control measures in the state of California. Um, and they also rejected a measure which would have taxed property tax, corporate property taxes would have used those increased revenues to pay for more, for better education. Um, so they rejected a really a wide swath of progressive measures. Um, a few passed something like consumer data protection and they, they allowed felons to vote, uh, or felons on parole to, to vote, which is good. But, Still, a lot of those really kind of um, important material benefit packages were soundly rejected by California's voting base. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Nathan, that some of these things that were, you know, like progressive policy that you would expect to be passed in progressive states is failing um, and passing by a ton. So Florida passed that $15 minimum wage by 60 percent of the vote. And as we know, Trump also won that. So that means a lot of people voted for Trump and voted for a $15 minimum wage. Um Fox News also had 70% of people backing um, government-sponsored health care and exit polls. So 
this just shows that people like are embracing those progressive policies. And I think another takeaway is that messaging is so important. Um, phrasing of these initiatives on the bill and the kind of messaging is around. I know, Micah, you were telling me earlier about a text you received regarding ranked choice voting in Massachusetts. Do you want to just explain that a little bit? Yeah, so it, it was uh, it was Prop 2 in Massachusetts um, that would have instituted ranked choice voting um, to become like the second state along with Alaska, which also rejected it after Maine. But yeah, I just got these like, because I've been a, a voter in Massachusetts in the last couple of years. So I'm still on the voter rolls and I get these texts every so often. And this was in on the anti, uh, anti yes on two prop. And they were just like very misleading texts, very like, uh, didn't even mention ranked choice voting. Like they didn't even put in the name. They were just said like, Micah, we're calling on you to vote no on two. Uh, it's the only way to assure fair, reliable and accessible hmm. elections in Massachusetts, um, which the Republican governor, Charlie Baker, also came against. Um, so it's just, you know, it, it just felt misleading and, and confusing. And um, but it's it's interesting that the state would go handily for Biden, but also decide to soundly reject something like ranked choice voting. And I think just the lesson is when we're canvassing, first that for these propositions, canvassing is really essential and having conversations with voters where we can clearly explain what these policies are because there's so much misinformation or language intended to obfuscate um, the essence of these bills. And they're really worded confusingly on the ballots themselves. And so um, it's hard for people uh, to kind of like understand the nature of a lot of these propositions. I know like I had to do a ton of reading on the people's first ones. Um, so definitely, I think that's where we see canvassing being like especially effective. And that was definitely the case. I know People's Force, First Portland has been out um, for a long time canvassing to get these propositions passed. Well, we saw something Oops. similar in California, too. The propositions were worded. I was trying to really go through them today, and I couldn't figure out what voting yes would have meant on the way Prop 22 was voted. I think it was Prop 22. I can't remember which one exactly, but it, it was very unclear if, I was, if you would have been voting for or against the proposition based on like all the triple negatives they used. And um, I also heard from uh, uh, a Californian, a Bay Area friend of mine, that um, there was a lot of similarly confusing advertising and messaging about the propositions, but also I saw a really interesting op-ed and I think it was the San Jose Mercury Sun, whatever whatever their local newspaper is there, um, that was all about voting against Prop 22 because it would be better for drivers. You know, the drivers want this. They want they want to be able to have flexible uh, hours of work. You know, they don't. This is bad for drivers. So it's it's even misleading in that it's you know drivers groups came out solidly in favor of we want to be classified as employees. And it's interesting that these papers can speak to their audience who are kind of um, a lot of the time more middle middle class living in these very wealthy Bay Area tech areas and hear stuff like flexibility. Oh, I like flexibility in my job. I right. want to have a flexible hours. I want to do these things. So I'm doing them a favor. It's really like, no, this is how they're making their living and they're not being paid a living wage. Um, right. So it's also knowing your audience and the targeting targeted messaging that we're seeing from ostensibly uh, unbiased news sources too kind of serves the same purpose there. 
Well, that, that's a very good point. I think it touched on, and I mean, this brings me this brings me back a, a little bit to the emergence of tech companies in uh, in Silicon Valley and maybe on, in California, and how they were able to let's say capitalize on this counterculture idea that many people working in the beginning in tech had, because they were hackers, lots of them. You know, they were just uh, fidgeting around at home with like computers and motherboards and things, and they were working very weird schedules, and they were believing that they want flexibility. And guess what? The companies came and offered them flexibility, but they offered them in a very capitalist, profit, profit-making, basically, context. And that's the same thing we see nowadays. And they still live by those values, and they unfortunately don't understand, you're right, Nathan, how, how flexibility can actually affect other people and how it's not a desirable thing, maybe for some of us, you know, having to be called at work at 2 a.m. And we know so many stories of probably zero-hour contracts and how terrible they are, but but it, it's a lot, honestly. I would love, actually, guys, to ask a bit more, like, now, bouncing bouncing out of Portland, Maine for a bit, trying to look at the, at the election at the nation level. I know not all the states are in, so there are still votes that are being counted. How did it make you feel seeing some states going le- uh, red or blue on the map? I remember going to sleep before Florida went red. I was praying it will go blue. I woke up, Florida and Texas red. I was like, Jesus, something is going to happen again. <laughs> Well, it's interesting how uh, every every election cycle, it's a new set of nail biters, right? So I remember Florida going well into the night in um, 2016 and being worried about Florida, looking at every county, scrutinizing every district. Um, and this year it was, you know, called relatively early for us. I went to bed. I went to bed pretty early also. I was really surprised, but Florida had already been called. And then there was that Texas surprise <laughs> where we were like, well, what's going to happen in Texas? Um, I, watching those go... Um, Red, I think it was interesting because we had CNN on at one point and it's constant, constant, constant um, updates about what's going on. They had poor John King only gets to work one night a year. I guess they pull him out of whatever closet they're storing him in for the rest of the year. And he, he just speaks for like six hours straight. But one you know, with all the sensationalism uh, regarding all the results coming out, one thing that I consistently heard that I thought was really important this election cycle in particular was we don't know anything yet. All these results are just from certain counties. That's why Texas looks blue right now. Texas is not, you know, at the time, there's certainly not going to go blue. And so patience was really, I think, the name of the game to watching this cycle in particular, especially with all of the mail-in votes. And they're making us stay patient now. Um, still waiting. So I was really struck by, like, just I'm going to hold off and wait till we uh, absolutely know what's happened before. I'm 100% uh, sure. And I think something that's actually felt good for me is that, you know, immediately after the election happened, the Democrats and Republicans each scramble to find the narrative that best propels their ideology um, that comes out of the election. And the fact that we've had to wait has also put a halt on those narratives and given other people a time to really interject in trying to figure out what's going on. And we know that it's somewhere in the middle. Like, even if Biden wins, it doesn't mean that he's the most electable candidate because it was so close. And we know that. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm appreciating almost like while it's giving me anxiety and um, maybe I can only appreciate it because I'm I'm believing that Biden is going to win. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it I think it slows down this like media that's so obsessed with hot takes <laughs> and so obsessed with like generating these narratives um, and to see them not be able to do it, I think, has been a little satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and making sure that uh, at least for pundits and especially on the sort of like liberal center like mm-hmm. CNN, uh, it, it was definitely a very deliberate thing. Like Nathan, you were talking about, but they're not—they're trying not to say 
make any conclusions early on um, because this is like their huge mistake that they made in 2016 um, on behalf of all these pundits and pollsters from the beginning. Um, and I found it to be, uh, I found it to be interesting because I heard like a couple interviews with folks like Nate Silver and the, the people from 538 um, who are really trying to emphasize the way that pollsters had learned their lesson from 2016 and are making all these adjustments and they're taking into consideration like demographics and and education levels and geography more into their polling to have more well-informed polling that's more accurate and really truly reflects the electorate. Um, and so, I mean, we saw that trying to be uh, affirmed by the pundits on CNN, but I guess the question is like, what what did we see? And and like, is it was were these pollsters and these po- were the polling really better adjusted? to the reality of the electorate uh, based on what hmm. we saw. Um, I mean, yeah, I think, I think the answer is just no, by and large. We know, <laughs> speaking in Maine, it was um, can, like expected to be either a very tight race or a clear win for Sarah Gideon, and she kind of was wiped out by, um, by Susan Collins. And so I don't know if it means that they're not talking to the right people, but um, – but it didn't work. And and similarly, Wisconsin, I think Biden was up 11 points before the election um, and did win Wisconsin, but by 20,000 votes. And that's in within the 1% um, margin of error. And so mm-hmm. we've seen polls um, fail again. And I think it makes us question, I don't know, the science of polling. Well, I mean, it's just like, I think one of the main problems they ran into and will continue to run into is just like, pollsters are not going to be able to get people to tell them uh, that they're voting mm-hmm. for Trump. They're embarrassed to say that they're voting for Trump, or maybe not embarrassed, but for whatever reason, people are less inclined to tell pollsters that they're voting for Trump. Um, and so it was interesting because exactly what you guys were just saying, we constantly heard over the last four years, we've made up for the mistakes. I never once heard one way <laughs> that anyone was making up for the mistakes. They just keep saying it. And I think convincing themselves more than anyone else and trying to convince themselves more than anyone else this is going to work, but I think we're going to see a major rejection of the 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 polling uh, status quo right now. And I think people, whatever happens and whatever adjustments they make, people aren't just gonna, just not going to trust the polling anymore because it's been so consistently uh, consistently off base. And I think well, we in liberal circles, where people decide months before the election, like you know, no one I knew had any question but that they were going to vote for Biden, or maybe a few of our uh, furthest left comrades who were not <laughs> sure whether they could vote for a war criminal. Um, but like everyone we know was, was on that Biden train. Whereas I think there's a lot of people who aren't sure, aren't sure if they're going to end up going in. Um, and I've heard some like really interesting stories about people who, who went in for other reasons and kind of ended up voting. I think there's an argument to be made that um, the reason I believe um, marijuana legalization was on the ballot in Nevada um, and some people were saying that that might have helped Biden get the edge is that people went in because they wanted to vote in favor of marijuana legalization. And then while <laughs> they were there, we're like, uh, you know, I'll throw in a vote for Biden. And I think that people just are not all operating in this like liberal framework where you're like super attached to one candidate. Um, and, and I think we're part of our polling is assuming that people operate that way and not recognizing that people are making last minute decisions um, to go in or not go in. That's so true. I, I was actually think. Uh, can you go ahead, Micah? And or? well, sure. No, I, I just I I have to say, like, I, I gotta ask, like, this is all coming a day and a half after the results started coming in. 
uh, it's pretty easy to see now that the pollsters were wrong, that they've really done nothing to accommodate for their lack of, um, for their accurate lack of accuracy. But like, did you guys, how much did you guys buy into it? Because I truly and honestly kind of felt myself like in the last couple of weeks of the election, like really buying into it, like really being like, yeah, I mean, the pollsters are probably right. Like they probably made some changes and like, it's partially like I wanted, I, I did want to buy the presidency and I didn't want it to happen. And I wanted to buy into it a little bit, but I was kind of sold and more so than I expected being and a, a more, much more so than I was right after 2016. And even much more so than I was a couple months ago when I thought probably at least before the virus started that Trump was going to win. Um, but I felt convinced and I'm curious if you guys had, had drunk the Kool-Aid similarly. Hmm. I, I mean, I was. Yeah, I remember actually looking at uh, five thirty-eight. Uh, sorry, I'll just say this very quick. I remember looking at five thirty-eight, and I think they projected around ninety-three or ninety-one percent winning for Biden. Uh, I mean, we haven't. The, he hasn't won yet the election, so they might be right to a certain extent with that. But I remember when uh, when Florida and Texas came in, and I think Ohio came red as well. People were really doubting. Like people were again, like starting to ask questions about about again the polls. Are they actually right to an extent? And I think up until we're not going to see uh, the results, we're we're actually not going to be able to judge based on that. But I have to say that uh, I remember talking to some of my friends from Brunswick, from Brunswick, Maine, about this. And after Florida and Texas turned red, they are very skeptical of Biden winning because they based their whole analysis on the Latino group. And they felt that if Hillary was able to win such a big part of Latino from, from Florida, why, why did actually Biden not win the same amount and actually won much less? Yeah, I would love um, to jump in on this. I just want to correct myself before it was Arizona, not Nevada, where marijuana legalization was on the ballot. And that's where people were saying that that might have actually helped um, Biden's victory. But yeah, so I am really interested in the way the Latino vote played out in this election. I think we know it played a huge role in some of the key states we're talking about, Florida, Texas, Nevada and Arizona, which are two states yet to be called. Um and I think there's like a couple ways we can think through this. We know that Trump increased his Latino support from the last election. Um, and I have this mm-hmm. interesting statistic right in front of me, which is that in um, the most Hispanic county in Texas, which is Star County, Texas, um, it's also the third poorest county in Texas. Obama won this county by 73 points. Clinton won it by 60 points. And Biden only won it by five points. So that's just a really clear example um, of his losing support among that community. Um and I'm, I'm curious, Nathan and Mike and Stock, what you think contributes to this. I think my initial takes are, one, I think it's maybe not even the most productive category to think of this, um, this idea of Latino, because we know that's an incredibly, incredibly broad group of people that includes, um, you know, people who are, have backgrounds in, who are like indigenous people, um, Af- people who are descendants from enslaved Africans, and people who are descendants from like white Spanish colonizers. And those are really different identities that would inform politics in really different ways. Um, And I think especially when we're looking at uh, the Cuban and Venezuelan communities in Florida, uh, many of those people who are here fled socialist regimes. And so I think that the anti-socialist rhetoric um, is extremely effective in those communities. The last thing I'll say is that I was reading that Biden or I'm sorry, Trump had Spanish ads in Florida a whole month before Biden. So I think we actually have to also, to some extent, give credit where credit is due, where I think Trump understood this as a potential key base for him and really effectively reached out. Pence went to Cuba 
I'm sorry, Florida to the Cuban (laughs) community many, many times. Um, And yeah, like they had Spanish speaking ads a month earlier. That's how you, that's one of the ways you reach this community. And I'm not convinced that Biden um, was innovated or committing to reaching out to that community. Yeah, I think that, I think that's absolutely right. Like I I think the Biden campaign really voters for granted. And I mean, not just uh, Latino voters, but uh, really most voters of color. And I think a lot of blue, just people who they expected to vote blue anyway. I mean, there's a famous now famous Biden quote of, you know, if you're, wondering if you're going to vote for me or you're going to vote for Trump, you ain't black. And I think that that was the encapsulation of their their, their uh, strategy in this campaign is they were just like, well, they're going to vote for us. We don't have to do anything there. Um, and it shows like I think what's noteworthy is, Olivia, it's a really interesting point that, of course, it's not, you know, we can't say like Latinos are one group in this way. But that that drop from Obama and then even Hillary to Biden after four years of Trump. So seeing four years of Trump, Hillary Clinton are saying, okay, now we like Trump, which is fascinating to me um, that they're actually looking at what Trump has done and saying, this is what we think Biden would have done. Um, And then the the Cuban vote is just a gimme. I mean, the fact that he could increase his his margin there and they're they're so uh, right wing and there were even more willing to go for him. So I think Biden probably there just wrote them off again, didn't even make an effort and failed to recognize that there was ground to lose. Um, and there was ground to lose and they lost it. So um, just a real, real miscalculations there. And of the same type that we saw in 2016, when Hillary just didn't visit those quote unquote blue wall states, and then the wall crumbled because they took it for granted. I would also yeah. want to, oh, sorry, go ahead, Micah. Oh, I was just going to, there's, there's a, I think current affairs had a, had a nice piece sort of reflecting on the Biden campaign on the Latino vote. And I just want to like read one quote, which I think sums it up pretty nicely, which is that, uh, quote, Biden's campaign, Biden's primary campaign had a distant, if not tense relationship with Latino voters as he's not only negle- as he not only neglected to reach out to them, but never quite rectified his connection to the Obama administration's aggressive deportation policy. Uh, Biden became the presumptive Democratic nominee in spite of not because of his Latino outreach, uh, but more than 20 Latino political operatives say his luck may not hold in the general election. So this was before we knew the results of the of the general um, and I mean, it, it speaks to a couple of things. The first is um, this kind of neglected difference between or, or neglected continuity, really, between the Obama administration and the Trump administration's treatment of immigrants. Um, and secondly, sort of like Bernie and other candidates, uh, real strategy and like organizing in the primary with regard to Latino voters um, and especially certain groups like Puerto Rican voters. Um, but uh, and sort of like assuming Biden's assumption that that would just like carry through for him in the general. And of course, that was uh, an assumption they took for granted. Yeah, I think Micah makes a big point. And, you know, at the end of this podcast, we're going to address our favorite question. Would uh, would Bernie have won? And, you know, I think we're probably going to all end up saying we don't know. But I think it's important to note that Bernie had incredible turnout among the Latino community and and that was because of the work he put in. You know, you don't you have to earn people's votes. And there was organizers the day before the caucuses in Nevada who were standing outside of meatpacking plants, which were worked um, by majority Latino people at 3 a.m. having Spanish conversations with people um, about voting for Bernie. And Biden just did not put in that work. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Arizona, where the Latino community and specifically Mexican-Americans did come out for Biden 
but that's not at all due to the work that Biden put in. Um, there's been an incredible machine of, of organizing in the Latino community in Arizona for the past 10 years since the bill SB 1070. And that was that, I don't know if you guys remember, we were like 11, but that incredibly racist bill about um, being able to pull over people just based on their skin color in Arizona. It was some of the strictest anti-immigration bills in the country. And that really um, instigated a tremendous response among Latino organizers in Arizona who were responding to those racist policies. And they've been organizing around, um, you know, in response to immigration laws for 10 years now. And they've built a really powerful organizing coalition and they turned each other out for Biden. Um, so that's not thanks to Biden's work. That's thanks to like pre-existing organizing relationships um, that have been there for 10 years. Another place I want to shout out is the Unite Here Union. This is the hotel, restaurant and casino union that <clears throat> operates in Arizona, Florida and Nevada. Um they did incredible organizing for this election. 90% of their members are out of work right now. And they actually paid people um, who are out of work who are part of that union to do political organizing. And so that's the unions doing like really incredible work. I think if, you know, we end up with that win in Arizona and Nevada, it's really in part of the work of Unite Here. So we are, we are thankful to those workers. Um, yeah. And I think we just see that like, the, the Democrats don't think they have to own their voters. They they tokenize people of color and take their votes for granted. They don't put in the work and, and they lose. And, you know, Trump, obviously, we can all like think he's terrible and, and he is. But he, I think, is more strategic with his outreach. Um, and that's why every um, single identity group except white men increase their support for Trump in this election. And I think that is um, a really important thing that we have to remember. Yeah, and uh, on that, I think it's it's a great example of the Democratic Party. I mean, Trump having, I, I even struggle to say a better strategy, Trump being strategic <laughs> and the Democrats just failing again to be strategic <laughs> at all and thinking about how to win an election, which they just don't um, think about, which is strange. Um, Libby, uh, forget, I forget what I was going to say also. <laughs> Trump being strategic, not strategic. Well, I, I, it's 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 a good question because it, it speaks to the, this uh, narrative that we're seeing a lot, a lot of places. I think across the center and and the left, um, which is that this was uh, an election that should have been in the bag for Biden. Um, and there's a couple elements at at play here that contribute to that narrative. The first is the pandemic, the biggest one, um, and. You know, there's a lot of people who have written that, like, the conditions were right for Biden to have a landslide lead, uh, a landslide victory, um, and that therefore uh, his failure or failure to come out as strongly as he as he should have is even a greater indictment of him, him and the Democratic leadership, uh, which I think is true. But I think I want to question a little bit the fact that um, the pandemic necessarily would have been or did play um, a role that should have given the Democrats an upper hand. Um, because I think this is like, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's an interesting question um, because of course Trump like is seen in the liberal media to have totally mishandled the pandemic. Many mil like millions of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have died on his watch because of it. Um, but it, it somehow, I don't, I'm not convinced necessarily that it was a, uh, it was a gimme therefore, for the Biden campaign. What do you guys think about this? Well, that, that kind of... As in, do you think that... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that speaks to their whole mentality. 
which is again, like, well, we're just going to win. Um, so even it's like, it's a, it's the kind of thing where I'm inclined to think that I, I would think similarly that the pandemic, the pandemic was so mishandled and Hillary lo- uh, Clinton lost by such small margins in such key places that I was thinking that that totally could have, would I was a hundred percent had drunk the Kool-Aid to answer your earlier question that that would flip the election uh, or tilt the election in Biden's favor. But again, it's this issue of if you're doing this kind of political work, you don't assume that that's going to happen. You assume that it's not going to happen so that you can like, uh, so that you can uh, 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 plan for all the contingencies. But I, I, I think that's another great example of them taking something for granted and just using their, their own internal logic, uh, this, this liberal logic, to just assume, okay, it's in the bag, it's in the bag, now we just wait and wait and wait, and it doesn't work. Right, and a lot of the things that, that plagued Hillary Clinton, um, you know, Biden didn't have that Comey letter. Like, when we're thinking of the Democratic narratives of why Clinton lost 2016, it was... The Comey letter, that didn't happen to Biden, obviously. Gender, and I don't want to undermine that sexism definitely played a role, but obviously Biden's a man, and so that won't be um, an issue in this election. And then Clinton is so tied to, like, the Washington elite and is seen as this kind of, like, oligarchical figure, whereas Biden, you know, weirdly enough, has more of this, like, working-class vibe, kind of this, like, you know, our pal Joe mythology around him. Right. So it's, it's interesting that, like, you know, the narrative was that these are the things that cost uh, Clinton the election and, and Biden didn't have any of those things. And yet is like, you know, and, and maybe the, the answer is that, like, the fact that he didn't have those things is what's going to be putting him over the edge and actually allow him to win this election. But we have to ask the question, why, when we have a president who allows, you know, I, I don't know the corona death statistics now, but like thousands and thousands and thousands of people to die, um, a president who is outwardly racist and outwardly sexist and um, also just seems a bit crazy. Like why are the Democrats struggling to win? Like it just shouldn't, it shouldn't be this case. And I think I'm mm-hmm. so, my biggest fear out of this election is that because Biden may pull it off, the Democrats are not going to look inward, not take inventory and not say that this is a disaster that they're yeah. coming this close. It's, it's an, mm-hmm. it's an utter disgrace. It's a disgrace. Yeah, no, it's, it's, they're not going to remember that okay. a win is not a win, right? They're just gonna be like, a win's a win. That's it. We won. So right. no reflection. Right. And <laughs> I'm inclined to say, I really do think that a lot of this election comes to, uh, comes back to Obama's legacy because we saw in 2016, an immediate referendum on Obama's legacy where Hillary Clinton was playing the role of Obama uh, or uh, representing that administration. And I really, I had a very good friend of mine whose family was, went, ended up uh, voting for Trump in New York. And in 2016, we had a big fight the day after election day. And his point was just, and this has really informed my, my understanding of that whole election was his point was just, it doesn't matter. Um, or, uh, he was just like, Obama did not work for us so hard that we're willing to try the other thing, even though we know that he's this stupid racist oaf. We're willing to try the other thing because we know that Obama didn't work. Um, and I think it's really telling that now, after four years of Trump, um, we know what Trump looks like, we know what Obama looks like, and there are still people saying, "I like Trump better." Um, and you know, Biden is even more forcefully the the face of that administration. So I really think the Democrats are really going to have to think hard about this whole idea of if only we could go back to Obama. You know, what was the Obama thing like? If Obama were president, we'd all be at brunch right now. Yeah. Like that is so the wrong way to think about this because this is. So much of this is coming back to Obama's failures in the end, and the Democrats are never going to remember that because they're just going to, you know, want their their 
they're they're fun to add them. That's so true. They want their That's brunch. So true. I always felt that they were actually fighting on an equal ground. Uh, I'm not as connected as I said to the elections, uh, but when I when I was looking, I was watching the debates. I always thought that, that those two candidates are actually debating against some invisible one. Like Biden was trying to to debate against a reasonable, like decent, and this appeal to decency kind of got me thinking quite a lot about what the Democratic Party is trying to achieve, and then Trump going fully ballistic trying to be like a warrior type of figure. And I'm very curious. I mean, maybe this tells a lot about what uh, the American people want. You know, maybe they actually want a warlike figure that can go into Washington or can go wherever they want, like slam the table and just say, I want this done. And I wonder if that's actually, I mean, this might be a bit philosophical and sociological as well, but I wonder if this comes as well from not centuries, but decades of people realizing they're powerless. And here I'm actually thinking of the white working class of the Rust Belt. I know this year they actually switched for Biden, if I'm not mistaken, Wisconsin and Michigan, but by not a huge percentage. Still, Trump has made huge gains and he has won Ohio, where there was a strong industrial base there. And what do you guys think? And Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I this is something I think about a lot and and is at the core of the tensions that I'm feeling when trying to understand the election. Um, because I think there's two things at play. I think that who people elect as president is the person who has the best story of what is happening in the country now and what to do with it. And I think Trump's story of what's happening in the country is not entirely incorrect. He is identifying people's pain and despair and saying that where we're at is fundamentally wrong and bad and we have to go back. And what we would disagree with is this idea of going back. No, America was not better in the past. Um, Mm -hmm. And Biden isn't even naming their problem by saying, oh, we're going to go back to the Obama years. He told his donors nothing would fundamentally change. And people lost their homes and lost their jobs. And we have... Mm -hmm. We know despair is alive and well in this country. We have an insane opioid epidemic that's only, you know, resurging. We have suicide rates higher than ever. People are struggling with mass anxiety and depression related to, you know, economic um, disrepair. And we can't let people's poverty be an excuse for the racism and sexism. Um, And so this is why we have to be really careful when having this conversation. But I don't think Biden identified and named the problems of this country. And I think people don't identify with him. And, and this is where, you know, I'm, I'm going to say like, I, there was this great man who was on the Hill who we were watching. I literally don't even know who it was, but he was just like, you don't, you don't fight um, right-wing populism with nothing. You fight it with left-wing populism. And Bernie identifies the same problems that Trump does. And he offers a different solution. (laughs) And the solution is taxing the rich. And where Trump says the enemy are black people and immigrants, Bernie says the enemy is the rich people. And that's who that's what we think here. Um, but Biden, by saying there's no problem, then it just telling people that actually you're you're just a piece of shit. You know, like if you're if there's not a problem in this country, if you if you are suffering, that's on you. And you're people are right. They're a basket of deplorables. And. People don't want to be thought thinking that they're pieces of shit and they'd rather think that other people are pieces of shit. Um, and and yeah. I think that's how Trump's winning. And it's 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 sad and it's sad that people in their despair are turning towards racism and sexism. And it's unacceptable, no matter how sad they are, that that's the solution. But I think we also have to to understand that that's the phenomenon at play. I, I, Libby, I think that's like exactly right. And I think that the 
the like next logical step of that is that Trump also identifies an enemy, right? So he identifies totally an incorrect enemy, which is the idea that somehow immigrants are taking our job. It just this is a this is an invention, of course, but. Um, uh, he identifies an enemy and people know that there's been people can experience that there's been a deliberate effort to ensure that they have they receive less than they did before. Um, and that's not an accident. And I think that Biden and the Democrats and liberals in general want to chalk that up to, oh, there are some problems um, that need solutions. And this was like the whole Elizabeth Warren thing, too. Right. I've got a plan for that, like that the world like that the country is somehow just mismanaged. And needs to be uh, reworked mm-hmm. in such a way. I was actually thinking about it in the shower today. Uh, my dad always used to talk about how Mike Bloomberg, when he was mayor of New York, took down all the walls in City Hall, and they all sat in cubicles. And Mike Bloomberg would sit in the middle of this of this thing, and people could just come talk to him. And it was, you know, they took down the barriers. And I was thinking, I was struck by this today, and I, I was realizing, like, what? That's not a solution to any problem. That's not <laughs> policy. That's exactly the sort of things that the Democrats like embody is these non measures and non-identifications of a problem. So it's like people want, people know that someone is fucking them. Um, and Biden is just like, well, you know, it's Trump maybe. And they're like, well, that's not true. Trump says, at least I'm saying you're getting fucked. And then it's like, okay, great. Like I'll go listen to them. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think the the lessons from 2016 um, that were clearly given, handed to the Democrats were that you, you can't just depend on Trump's, campaign collapsing on itself, uh, that you need a bold agenda to counter Trump. Um, and what Biden did in a sort of like ongoing extension of what Clinton did in 2016 uh, was to fail to offer a compelling alternative to the Trump rhetoric um, and to fail to support policies that are proven to be popular in the country. I, I thought like uh, there's a class, a popular Fox poll going around recently that cites um, over 70% of Americans support some sort of state health insurance policy. Um, right. And, and, and these are just like, and, and, and we saw that the meat of Biden's campaign was more like a, uh, I'm, I'm not going to pass a green new deal. I'm not going to pass Medicare for all. Um, really just like negations. These are, is an, it was more like an anti-campaign, an anti-Trump campaign, an anti-popular policy campaign than it was of anything sub- substantial um, and more than just tweaks and, and policy changes, but something substantial and, and uh, invigorating and catalyzing for, for, for the voters that, that Clinton missed in, in 2016. I, I totally agree. I'm reminded of this 60 Minutes interview with Kamala right before the election that like makes my blood boil every time. It, this was, you know, to, to Micah's question, did we know? I feel like I've been in such a state of de- despair that I was like, I have, we might have civil war, we might have Biden, like, I don't know. <laughs> but, but what made me doubt was watching the media, like, they just didn't have a response to this question, like, are you a socialist? And I really want to talk about this because we know that Trump over and over again said that the left wing is taking over the party, called Kamala a socialist, called Biden a socialist. And so my question is, would that have stuck more on Bernie or were they going to use it anyway? And so it didn't matter. Um, and, and watching the 60 Minutes interview, you know, the, the person the whoever was interviewing um, Kamala Harris said, you know, you in the primary supported Medicare for all. You supported a Green New Deal. Are you going to keep pushing these progressive or even socialist policies on on Biden when you are vice president? 
So first of all, the media is so good at like goading them and they don't have a response. They say, oh, we're not a socialist. We're not a socialist. Um, and she said, no, I'm, I'm not going to advance those policies. What I'm going to bring is my lived experience as a black woman, um, my love of hip hop. This is what she said as in response. And so while I'm sure she's had unique experiences as a black person, that's going to inform the way she governs and hopefully for the better. And I certainly want a woman president and a person of color president, woman of color president, like that feels really important. But she said no to these policies that we know people are voting for um, and then offered simply her being in instead of these policies. And that's like not enough for people. She's like, I will be there. And I am a person who's had experiences. That is what she offered. It's like Hamilton, right? Lord. The same people who love Hamilton. Like, I want to be in the room where it happened. Like, politics is them. Like, this rap. Don't come at Hamilton, it's Nathan. Like this rap musical <laughs> that Lin-Manuel orchestrated. And like, this is not what's going on here. This Mike and I had a two-hour car debate over Hamilton, so uh, that's another uh, podcast. Well, I, well, I guess I want to – sorry, go first, though. Okay. I, I was actually – I was thinking a lot about this comment about socialism, and I personally – I try to understand when, for example, Democrats are more moderate people, maybe that have some socialist tendencies or some leftist tendencies – already feel that when someone calls them a socialist or asks me they're a socialist, regard it as an attack. I think that's basically like failed momentum. I think people should just embrace it personally. I think that if we continue to regard it as an attack, you know, we're not going to end up anywhere and we're going to be in the same point, you know, even five years from now on. And uh, the point with Kamala, I know this is, this is extremely important because I mean, while for us, and we are maybe we are like on the progressive side of the spectrum, uh, being someone called a socialist, you know, doesn't necessarily make us, each or make us makes us this uh, uncomfortable trump has used this very intelligently in florida and has used it to target them like tra- target biden as a socialist as a potential hugo chavez or as a potential fidel castro to the cubans and to the venezuelan communities and i'm very curious if there will ever be a possibility of people actually understanding what this term is or actually they will always always just regard it as something negative or something that can be addressed as an insult. And I think my, my follow-up question for you guys is, would we know that that insult or that word did stick to Biden and cost him votes? And what would it look like as Bernie as the nominee, who is someone who actually identifies as a democratic socialist? Would he be able to pivot because he's not just going to say, no, 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 I'm not? Or would that have really sunk his campaign? Because we know that there is still... Socialism is still a dirty word in this country. Yeah, I think that's that, that's a really interesting. Those are both really interesting questions. I think the a huge thing that's going to matter for for um, socialists in general and just like the broader left or even liberals is the recognition that most people, when they hear so, well, the way the, that socialism is used as an insult or a pejorative now, is the idea that it is the the logical conclusion of liberalism, that it is more liberal liberalism. Right. Um, so it's the idea that yes. like, oh, you hated all of these, you know, milk toast Hillary liberal policies. Well, a socialist is more that. And I think what Bernie does so effectively is mm. demonstrate why social, his socialism is precisely counter to that. Um, and so I actually met when I, I studied, I studied uh, abroad in, in Cuba and I met a guy there, an American guy who would frequent Cuba even though he was a right winger, any right wingers who frequent Cuba be very skeptical of them because they're there for 
weird. <laughs> so this guy wouldn't tell us his last name, number one. But he, we were, we were talking for a while, and he kept, he just said at one point, um, you know, I, I, I hate, you know what my name for MSNBC is? Marxist Socialist NBC, which I'm like, great. <laughs> Sick word. Awesome like really hard work. But I was so infuriated that he saw MSNBC as my position. I was like, no, we both hate them. We both hate MSNBC, dude. Like, we agree with that. So I think it's like the way that we we think of this as like just a left right spectrum, and then there's there's like you know Trump, then establishment Republicans going from right to left, Trump, establishment Republicans, establishment Dems, and then socialists. And it's really just like totally parallel planes that don't overlap. It's a totally different political message and project. Exactly. Exactly. It's seen as a sort of linear progression here. And I think this speaks to the way um, Democrats might respond to the results of the election. The only sort of thing I've seen coming from like the CNNs, the MSNBCs, is like there is an acknowledgement of something that they didn't anticipate. Uh, what I'm seeing is this, it's an acknowledgement that Trump is more popular than they that, than they thought, right? But it sort of stops there. It's like, okay, well, we're realizing, you know, Trump is actually really popular, but what do you do with that, right? Like, okay, so do we change what we do? And I think the question that you're bringing up is like, okay, so if the, if the Democrats do realize this and then inform their policies in a way that's that changing them, Based on that linear progressive logic that socialism is the natural extension of liberalism, does that mean that they have to pivot more to the right to accommodate the, 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 the popularity of Trump? Or does that mean that they have to pivot towards the left? Um, and I, I'm expecting to see more takes along the former, the lines of the former um, than the latter. But uh, there's two yeah, options. I- we saw Biden try to capture this mythical, you know, center voter, this suburban Republican. Um, we know that Republicans voted more for Trump than they did in 2016. Um, I would say the other thing, I'm just like, and this is my my fantasies of Bernie being mm-hmm. the nominee. Like, I'm just imagining a brilliant ad where he's like, you can call me a socialist. You can call me Bernie. You can call me whatever. <laughs> I don't care what you call me. I want health care for you. I want a Green New Deal for this country. Like, there are ways to play with it. And Biden and Kamala didn't play. They just said, no, we're not a socialist. No, we're... And it's like, when you deny things, you know, people think that you're that thing. Um, <laughs> like, he was melted, dealt it of socialism. Um, but the other thing that I think about Bernie, and, and this is, you know, we we did a lot of canvassing in New Hampshire and Maine, and, and these are unique states. Um, you know, we know Maine ended up going for Biden. Maine is a weird, complicated place. I'm like, feel like I'm still trying to understand it politically, but we talked to so many people who were like Trump Bernie voters and it was, it was weird. And like, I I was knocking on doors and I'm this like, whatever, like somewhat petite woman and was like a little nervous. There's people who definitely had guns, people who told me that they had guns, people who opened the door with guns on their holster. And that was a new experience for me. And people who like looked like this mythical poor white working class voter. And, Mm -hmm. and I imagined that they, would hate me. And I had like so many fascinating conversations with people. Um, and, and there's one that I'll, I'll never forget. And of course this is anecdotal and I don't want to pretend that this represents the country, but it was, it was like two days before the democratic primary in Maine. And I was talking to this guy and he said, Oh, you know, I voted for Trump last time. And I was like, you know, thanks for letting me know. And he, he was like, you know, I hate Trump. 
And I was like, me too. And he's like, but you know, it's what we deserve. It's where our country is so chaotic and Trump is the person that embodies it. And he goes, the only person I would vote for over Trump in a general is Bernie Sanders. And I said, okay, well, can you, can you go vote for him? You know, he's not registered. So he didn't want to register as a Democrat. So he didn't want to vote for Bernie in the primary. And I said, well, if there's any chance of Bernie getting to the general, like you need to vote for him in the primary. And he's like, the DNC would never let him through. It's not going to happen. But if by some miracle he makes it to the general, I'll vote for him over Trump. And whatever. This was one dude, but it was like such a chilling conversation for me. That is really, really, it, it just stuck with me. Yeah. And I, I think something else is interesting is like the idea that um, even the nature of the insult is, are you a socialist? Are you this? Are you that? Mm-hmm. And American politics in general, I, I can't say it's just the Democrats, but the Democrats in particular are so focused on choosing an individual that they don't choose any plank. Um, one, you know, we heard everything, everything from Joe Biden about a public option, public option, this public option, this. I doubt we're ever going to hear the phrase public option ever again. Um out of Joe Biden's <laughs> lips. Um, and similarly, you look at Obama and the, what he ran on versus what he did. And then that was never talked about. He won re-election and no one cared because it was about Obama. And it's about, are you a socialist? Who are you? Not what do you support? And Libya and everyone, as we've been saying this whole time, just like, what did all these ballot measures that we started off the, pal- uh, the, the podcast talking about show? They show that people want progressive policies and they're going to get them, whether it's through Republicans, Democrats, or neither, as we saw both in Portland and with the $15 minimum wage thing in Florida. So they're going to have to get past this individualism and start looking really at the nitty gritty of what is it that people want, not who is it that people want. I also think that the notion, so we were told that we have to vote for Biden because he's the most, you know, in the primary, Biden's the most electable. We're against fascism. We need to focus on the most electable. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a argument there's a good argument in there like fascism is very scary and Trump is is terrible he you know might not give up the right like this is like a, a unique and terrible threat and so I get this idea that Biden is is the most electable but now we're here and and we show that he's not that electable so the the I guess I'm I'm what I'm trying to say is that like this notion of Biden being the most electable is this very like cynical understanding of our mm-hmm. country. And it might be true. And and saying Biden's the most electable means all these people who voted for Trump are just like terror, like are really sick. It means our country's sick. It means we're like deeply and incurably racist and sexist and, and a country of hate. And I don't know, that might just be what America is. And we know that we have um, an unbelievable legacy of racism and, and sexism in this country, but especially racism. And so maybe that's just what our country is. And that is like a, a really hard and sad pill to swallow. But if we understand it not being that Biden's the most electable and actually him being a failed candidate and the Democratic mm-hmm. Party being a failed party, then we have a different narrative of our country, which is the one we were talking about earlier of of people like reverting to this in pain. And I'm I'm just like really struck and like stuck between these two narratives of this country where people say Biden's the most electable. And that means, you know, if this is the best we can do as, as the left, as a progressive force, like this is very devastating. And Mm -hmm. I am inclined to believe that this is not because of what we're talking about with this, um, the fact that people were voting for Trump and voting for progressive policies. Yeah, Definitely. I would like to actually jump in and push a little, uh, 
a little, let's say, on this idea that um, maybe by voting for Trump, you know, and getting such a huge percentage for him, it shows that we're a country of racist and sexist. I would actually like to to say that maybe not everyone votes for Trump, and I've met people actually identify or you would witness from them a behavior that is indeed racist or sexist. I think often it happens out of desperation, and in some cases they really feel left alone and they feel like the Democrats in the past have abandoned them. And right here I'm actually looking maybe at the working class, the white working class, which is indeed a term that was maybe coined by, by, by Donald Trump himself this idea of there being a group that's the white working class. And they have witnessed, I mean, if you search documentaries on PBS about those beautiful towns in Ohio, people in the 70s or 60s will be talking about how they used to earn a good amount of money at union jobs at Ford or Chrysler and how they imagine their kids to have even better futures than themselves. Well, here comes the plot twist. Their kids had horrible futures. The parents lost their jobs five to ten years afterwards. The kids didn't have any more jobs. They ended up picking minimum wage jobs. And they literally felt like the whole idea of this beautiful American dream that was literally tied to industrialism at the time completely disappeared. And th- this is to me, this is, I think, is so important how Trump was able to capitalize on those emotions, on those emotions that someone has abandoned you and we're going to get you back. And I might, I might be wrong in this. And I would like you to correct me if I am. But I think this tactic was also used by Ronald Reagan. I think they're literally using the same tactic that Reagan has used, and it's still successful. They're literally managing to turn one one person against each other by capitalizing on those individual emotions of someone feeling of someone feeling lost or having lost a sense of one's country or one's something, and completely causing mayhem and completely blinding them from structural issues. They just think everything is about the individual. Exactly, and that and that and that movement in history that you're talking about. Um, as deindustrialization was going on, this turn towards neoliberalism, that same thing as as that was happening, we see the parties becoming more and more identical and and platforms mm-hmm. like under Clinton um, resembling more and more like a sort of right wing um, agenda. And and this is what a lot of what sort of built up in 2008 um, and what we're seeing continued in 2016 is is. Um, a, a response to, uh, but it's a response that hasn't been met um, sufficiently uh, by the Democrats or, or just at, at all sort of confronted by the Democrats. I just do think we have to be mindful as, as the left and as we're trying to build this new coalition, as we open our arms to these people and try to support their material conditions. And, and we also, I think, don't like it's essential that we don't compromise on our commitment to anti-racism, on our yeah. commitment to to you know LGBTQ rights and and to ending the patriarchy. Um, and I and I believe that like the only movement I want to be in is is one that welcomes people and loves people um, and and is patient with people as they learn. And I think you know as the four of us being white folks, like it's our job to do outreach because it's less dangerous and precarious for us. Um, and I think we have to find this balance of, of welcoming these people who, for whatever reason, do harbor, like they do, they are racist. And it doesn't mean that that is the permanence of their identity. And it doesn't mm-hmm. mean there's not factors in their life that have contributed to that. Um, and I think we have to, you know, see these people as part of our movement and, and try to be like really vigilant in our anti-racism work to make sure that um, that our movement doesn't also, you know, have those, uh, yeah. I mean, I just think we need to 
make sure yeah. our movement's yeah. anti-racist. Not that hard. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I really, I, I agree with <laughs> what, um, just to, to go back first for a second to what, to what Doc was saying, just about, um, I think you're absolutely right. It's like these, these structural issues get obscured. And there's also, I really don't think we should undersell the idea that there really is like this united, this American common sense, these American common sense values um, there's a real cultural hegemony of right-wing ideology, um, such that that's just how okay. Americans think about things. Um, and it makes sense. One of the main tools that Reagan used was this idea of the welfare queen, which is, you know, the the black woman who has children to get welfare checks and drives a Cadillac. And he used this, like, anecdotal story. I think she was supposedly in Detroit. Turned out, of course, this was, like, even if one individual like this existed, you can't make policy around it. He just made up the whole story to begin with. But it's this idea that you can capitalize on people's, not only their intuitions, but what they've been taught um, both in all of our cultural spaces and, you know, schools are as well, but and in their formal education about what it means to be an American, what it means to be a good person, what it means to be an individual. Um, and I think as regards the, the racism point that Livia was talking about, um, I think it's really important to recognize um, that. Trump's movement is predicated on racism, yes. And I just worry about the utility in um, going around under the assumption that Trump voters are racist. And I believe that many, probably we can even say most Trump voters, maybe all Trump voters, you, let's assume the definition. If you, if you vote for someone who's a racist, you're a racist. Okay, maybe that would include all Joe Biden voters too. And I certainly don't think I'm a racist. Whatever. Um, <laughs> But like, I just think in the end, we're going to catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Um, and especially as regards the idea of Hillary Clinton saying basket of deplorables, because once you can say like, they hate you, they think you're X and you don't think you're X, then you're not going to join up with them. So I do think it's totally important to remain like extremely vigilant in making sure any movement is explicitly anti-racist. But I, I think I would assume I'm slightly more hesitant than some to um, uh, 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 start making big claims uh, and, 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 and uh, casting a wide net with who we're going to label as racist if, if what we all want is to have no racism in the United States. I, I, I agree. Have... I think okay. I was just going to say that I think um, the moments that we need to remember that most are uh, when we're organizing. Like I had this moment, I was out canvassing in like not rural, but like suburbs of Portland getting towards some rural areas this past weekend. Um, and and like FYI, I'm like a tall, like white dude. Um, and, you know, I I have these, I had this, this, this canvassing list of voters from a, a, the range of, of identities and backgrounds. Like there's some suburban cul-de-sacs who are like sort of like, you know, like socially progressive, but conservative, fiscally conservative. Um, but then there are these like more rural houses with like blue lives matter flags and like homemade Trump paraphernalia and all this stuff. And I could feel that sort of like fear in me, um, that I think comes from these narratives, um, regarding Trump voters. And like, I, I think I would, I, I do want to say like there, there are probably like people who are racist in those areas and who have like very racist beliefs, um, and who might act on the, that racism too. But I think for, from an organizing standpoint, especially for me as like a tall white dude, it's like who the, the, the person best suited to t target and engage with a voter like that 
is someone like me, you know? And like, that's not to say that like, I'm the only one who can have an engaging and generative conversation with a voter like that. But it's to say that if I'm the person like me is operating under those same uh, assumptions and fears, and let's say like I avoided that house, for example, like that's on me. Like I have to be one of the people really taking that initiative to engage and, and move it. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with like the very valid fear that a lot of people would have um, especially like marginalized groups, like to knock on that door. And I like respect that decision, but like, it's something for me, I think, especially to hold on to and remember. Um, and I, I think Mike has pointed, I think it's, I mean, whatever I'd say, like all of us white people harbor racism. And I think that especially, um, especially people who, you know, who are complicit in Trump's agenda harbor racism. But I think the point is that you know, if we if we write them off as deplorables, then we have then it's a lost cause. And 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 those of us who feel comfortable and able have to do that outreach work and have to offer people home and community and financial support. Um, and, and with that, bring rigorous anti-racism education and knowing that even it's been a privilege for us um, to be exposed yeah. to places that have anti-racism curriculums, which so many schools, especially our American public school education actively teaches racism as opposed to, you know, teaching anti-racism. And then I think the other thing we have to acknowledge is that this whole like Trump Bernie dichotomy of, uh, or Biden, I'm sorry, dichotomy is racist, not racist is also flawed because we know that Biden has willingly worked with segregationist senators. Biden is responsible for the crime bill. And so I imagine that there's voters who say, Oh, we well, Trump's the racist one. Well, he, you know, it's mass incarceration is in part on Biden's hands and on Clinton's hands and on the Democratic Party's hands. And and we know that to be true. And, you know, Kamala Harris as attorney general had policies that were incredibly harmful, um, you know, especially to black people and black women. Her truancy policies um, where she said that parents could get incarcerated for their kids missing public school, like that was a terrible policy that just discriminated against black people. So, you know, the point is, I think both parties are racist and we need to build a movement that is anti-racist and we need to not write off people because of their racism and said, say, how can we reach out to these people? How can we reach out to them in an anti-racist way? And how can we make room for them in our movements while not compromising on our other commitments? And we have to step up and take responsibility as white people to be those people going out to communities, even if we feel unsafe. Um, I think like Blue Lives Matter and Trump signs like make us feel uncomfortable, but we are a lot more able to kind of do that work because it's less dangerous for us. And I and I feel like we should just be committed to that and building that movement. Right. And like thinking, is that a fear for our lives or is that a fear of otherness that has been created by these liberal narratives? And I think that's an important thing to interrogate. I also think that. True. I think this actually has to do a lot with the, with the with the culture of comfort in the United States that's heavily propagated. Everything has to be comfortable. I mean, I I don't pers- I think that you know safe spaces in lots of places indeed should exist, you know, for people to operate. But when there is a narrative that everything in life has to be comfortable and to reduce, you know, struggle to its bare minimum, I think you know it's actually counterproductive for leftists or progressives. Because I mean, if we go back, you know, and you go back to party vanguardism or you go back, you know, to socialist parties all over the world, they didn't just get members, you know, by themselves naturally. They had to have those uncomfortable conversations 
with people that were maybe racist, with people that I do not know, were maybe xenophobic, were sexist, were were not were just like maybe had even personality issues, you know, and wanted to dominate someone. But I think you have those conversations and trying to bring people into the movement. And I think we should be aware as well that the moment we bring those people into the movement, if we succeed, first of all, they will not be the pure version of socialists or leftists we assume them to be. They will still maybe have those traits from the past that we must be aware of and try to see how we can guide them to the path that we believe is the right yeah. one. No, absolutely. Yes. I think that's a great point. And I also, I, I think as regards racism in particular, but a lot of, a lot of these issues, uh, that were uh, and just traits that we're eventually not going to want to see in, I mean, any people, but any and then eventually any Americans and anyone involved with the sort of movement that we'd like to see in this country. Um, but so long as the Democrats like Kamala and Joe, while they're in office, enact these deeply racist policies or not just racist, you know, any any sort of policy, um, but it allows uh, um, Trump and certain vehement Trump supporters to say, see, when they're in office, they think like we do. Trump's just telling it like it is. And they're, you know, making all these liberal lies and saying that, you know, uh, that we that defund police, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, all this stuff. They don't really care about that. When they're in office, they think like we do. They think like Trump does. And they know that, you know, black people are super predators because this is what Democratic nominees say. And this is how they act when they're in office. So, so I really think so long as Democrats are doing that, it legitimizes everything that Trump does because they can just say, see, he's just telling it like it is. They're exactly the same, but they're lying. Um, and it, it makes Trump look really like he's telling the truth in comparison. Mm-hmm. No, and I'm, I just uh, to provide some context, what you're saying, Hillary Clinton called black people super predators. Obama expanded right. the deportation program larger under Obama than it was under Bush. And then when you talk about the lives of black and brown people in other countries, and we know that, yeah. you know, the Democrats are just as much the party of imperialism as, as the Republicans. And when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, you know, we mean black and brown lives all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Obama expanded the drone program, um, killing, you know, children and innocent people in Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia. Um, and so... And so, yeah, so it's it's that, you know, we really can't hold up the Democrats at all of, of the party of anti-racism. And I think we need to, um, you know, look to other leaders. You know, we have the squad who has been just like incredible, inspiring leaders on this front of both like meaningful policies um, and very courageous leadership. So we thank them. But I guess I would love to drop a hot take. I remember I was uh, maybe not that much of a hot take. It might be a bit mild. Uh, I was reading a book a while ago about Margaret Thatcher and the birth of new labor, and especially Tony Blair that came after Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom. And Margaret Thatcher, I think, was asked once by the BBC or some radio post, what was your biggest achievement while you're in office? And she said, Tony Blair and new labor. And I'm very curious if what we're witnessing right now with the Democrats, I mean, it's just the legacy of Reagan and it's his best product. And I'm very curious what we're witnessing with Democrats right now with being so careful to be anti-Trump, not necessarily lots of policies on hand, but just building this narrative of decency is again a product of Trump. And we are pushing again the Democratic Party further to the right or to the center as we want to consider it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's the state of our, I think you said it. I think that's the state of our party. And um, yeah, I think I'm, 
I'm interested in terms of this, you know, if we're talking about potential realignment, if we're saying that it's not a spectrum, it's maybe establishment versus anti-establishment, I think Maine is a really interesting place to look. Um, we know mm-hmm. that a lot of people in, in Maine voted for Collins and voted for Joe Biden, um, which was perhaps unexpected. Um, I would love to just talk a little bit about what you guys think on the on the Senate race. Um, and, and I think Maine is a really interesting state that like defies that political alignment that we're that we're usually talking about yeah i mean i can start with a quick anecdote from from uh, a moment canvassing this weekend when i uh was knocking on the door of uh i would say like a, a middle class suburb um and and i asked like you know have you decided um who you're gonna vote for the senate race on tuesday and you know she said you know, I'm still a little undecided, but um, definitely not Gideon. I don't trust her instincts when it comes to uh, funding her campaign, all this like outside money, uh, et cetera, pouring in. Um, and I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm also really critical of, of that, that element of Gideon's campaign. Um, have you considered looking into Lisa Savage, uh, who, who, for those who don't know, is the Green, card, Green Party candidate um, running uh, in opposition to both of them, but through ranked choice voting, giving an opportunity to sort of um, boost that possibility without necessarily sacrificing it for a Democrat. Um, and, you know, she said she had, she liked some of what uh, Savage had said, but uh, ultimately was going to stick with Collins. Um, and it's tricky because like there are these sort of double standards um, given that Collins also did take a lot of money um, from sort of corporations like FedEx and um, is like, meanwhile, not supporting uh, needs like supporting families uh, during the pandemic um, and the stimulus budgets and stuff. So there, there's a lot of these contradictions um, going on, I think, in Maine. And Sarah Gideon, I think, ultimately couldn't resolve them. And I think that's my biggest mm-hmm. takeaway. Um, yeah. I- yeah. I think we're also dealing with like a real nativist sentiment that exists in Maine. Um, Sarah Gideon is from Rhode Island, not Maine, and also has two parents who are immigrants and and her dad is not white, um, is my, I'm pretty sure uh, he's Indian. And so um, I think there's like a real, you know, I think we could say perhaps some racism is at play, but there is this idea. We have this like Maine feeling of authenticity that you have to be this like working Mainer um, and that's who gets elected. And Sarah Gideon is from Freeport. People believe that she, which is for those of you who are not Mainers, is like a mall town. Um, <laughs> and it's where the L.L. Bean store is. Um, and she was like funded by people in California, New York. And it's it's ironic because I actually wonder, people were so obsessed with winning the Senate and poured money into Maine. Yep. And I wonder if that money really backfired um, because Sarah Gideon, uh, Susan Collins could paint that against Sarah Gideon. Um yep. And, and, and it worked. Yeah. What, what do you think, Nathan? Thing. I was convinced that, that Susan Collins was going to lose precisely because of her, um, uh, precisely because of her Kavanaugh vote and then her Comey Barrett foot flop. And then also just her general real move towards towing the party line, um, the Republican party line, because what Maine yeah. voters really value, I think, or one of the many things they value, there's certainly this like Maine-ness and uh, an intense nativism. But one of the things they really value, I think is, excuse me, independence. Um, and that's why, you know, we have like kind of in the Northeast in general, you know, Bernie and Angus King are the two independent senators and they're from Vermont and Maine. And Angus King is the other senator. He's from Maine. And one of the things that they really valued, I think, in Susan Collins was this idea that 
okay, these are her views, so she's a Republican, but they're, the, those aren't her views because she's a Republican. It was, the, it was that um, she was not willing to break yeah. with the party line when she needed to. Um, and I really thought that that was starting to fray and that they would switch. But I, I think you're absolutely right with like the out-of-state money thing. Um, and uh, the ads that dominated this campaign were crazy. And on the one hand, we saw the Susan Collins ads, I think, were, are a great way to examine it. The pro-Susan Collins ads were, you know, vote for Susan, quote, she's a county girl. Um, and, you know, you can take the girl out of the county. You can't take the county out of the girl. That was a real ad. It's like an <laughs> so hard. And they look so, so staged and so fake. And you just see Senator Susan Collins, who's lived in Washington, D.C. for the last, what, literally like 25 years. Um, but then the attack ad on Sarah Gideon is Sarah Gideon is being funded by the Hollywood ultra left who want to do X, Y, and Z. And it totally painted her. You can tell we've memorize these ads because they've been on our computers nonstop for the past couple months. She's now beholden to these quote-unquote Hollywood ultra-left who want something from her. Um, and also, like, she just looked totally fake. Like, so she did a terrible job with her messaging. We would get all these mailers that we weren't sure if they were pro Sarah Gideon or anti Sarah Gideon. They would just be, like, a weird picture of her and say, like, fact check, Sarah Gideon. We're like, what is, what is this talking about? But I think, like, the, the messaging that surrounded it from Susan Collins totally had to do with Susan Collins is a county girl. Sarah Gideon is funded by outside ultra left money. So I just want to put a plug in for um, Chloe Maxim. People have been, I don't know. I saw some tweets that were like, next time this is who we have to run against Susan Collins, but she is super rad. She um, is from Maine with a person. She was a state rep who advanced the, um, the green new deal for the state of Maine. And she just was elected state Senate and flipped a seat from Republican to Democrat from a longtime um, incumbent. And and I'm looking at her website right now. She has great curly hair. So plug for her. She's awesome. Um, I have curly hair, too, for listeners. So that's that. Um, but she said, as state senator, I will build on my track record of effective bipartisan community based leadership to fight for resilient Maine. Um, blah, 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 blah. There's one part. Oh, Yes. She's like, we're an independent but built strong. We snowmobile, fish, hunt, hike, and work hard to reside in this beautiful mm-hmm. place, living on the land with respect and freedom. So, like, she went to Harvard and ran the Harvard divestment campaign. Like, she's a lefty, but, like, she's so strategic in right. reconfiguring her language to make it main-centric. Her environmental messaging is out of this hiking and hunting thing. And she just, like, knows how to speak to Maine voters. Um, so That's we should keep sure. our eyes on her. She's awesome awesome leader and and yeah definitely we should just like keep on her eyes on her as an emerging awesome leader in maine i would actually yeah, like I, also to put a little plug if that is possible i'm just looking right now uh i'm, I'm sorry i was just looking for a book uh to recommend it's called the lobster coast it's a it's actually a little history of maine and there is a beautiful metaphor in there which uh i actually dropped it in front of a bunch of like true mainers that stayed here for like four or five generations and they said they agree with it it goes like this if you put a cat or a kitten in the oven, it doesn't come out biscuits. Basically what it means, you cannot bring a New Yorker to Maine and make him a Mainer. He must live there for four or five generations. And they still believe this. It's a very strong sense of identity in Maine, indeed, and a very strong sense of tradition. Stock, it looks like you uh, you don't have a hot political career in Maine, unfortunately. I don't know if any of us do. We're the New York Boston elite, so that's not going to happen. 
Yes. I live in Romania. Imagine, you know, Sarah Gideon with Hollywood money. Imagine me coming from Romania and I'll be like, where the heck is this guy taking money from? You know? The dark but Romanian money. It is an interesting parallel, I think, between the failures of the Gideon campaign and the failures more broadly of the Biden campaign, um, which including that Gideon's campaign was a lot of the sort of like anti-Collins. Like I saw a lot of stickers that were just like the bye-bye Susan um, and this sort of narrative that again, like, right. And I would say like, I, I, I was in favor of a lot of her policies. I think she didn't go as far as she could have and didn't attack, like address certain key contradictions and, and essential needs as they are seen in Maine. But, um, but again, it was a campaign that was really like, and I'm not, I'm not Susan Collins. I'm not the one who made these bad decisions on the Kavanaugh and the Coney Barrett hearings. And um, at the end of the day, you can't run a, a campaign. That's just, I'm not my opponent. Um, and I think it's a similar yeah, message. And you just need to have a vision and a story. Um, and that's all we're asking from the Democratic Party, a vision and a story. <laughs> um, I'm like, what else do we have to talk about? I think it's worth mentioning that DSA killed it. Um, they won 28 out of the 37 national races in which they put up candidates. They won eight out of nine ballot initiatives where they put up candidates. And now there are socialist caucuses in 14 state houses in America, including Montana. Um, so yet again, you know, when we're saying is socialist a dirty word, like DSA is, is rocking it. So mad respect to those organizers who really, um, got out and, and did some great work. Including yeah. AOC among them who like won landslide again, um, against Ilhan Omar, Rashida. Yeah. Um, and potentially, potentially some eyes on higher leadership and higher Senate seats for, for AOC. We'll see. Yeah, let's, let's get her to be a New York Senator. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I'm so curious, guys, since we're we're slowly like approaching the end. I'm very curious to hear what you how what's like your let's say let's say like overview take on the election. How does it like we talked a lot about strategy, we talked about a lot about all of this, but right now, after a couple of days of still counting votes, if if Biden were to be a president tomorrow, how would you feel about that? Do you feel like it will be a substantial change in the world for you? Do you feel it will be such a huge paradigm change or it will be most of the same, but uh, just a I, different I face? The, the first thing is that it's looking like we're going to we're heading towards a Trump presidency with a Republican Senate, which is the Trump, which is I'm sorry, I'm sorry, a Biden president. A Biden, you mean a Biden. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh knock on wood, jeez. Which I think is the Biden campaign's dream uh, because then they get to sit for two years and do nothing, then the House will go uh, Republican after that, and then it will be <laughs> Biden with a Republican-controlled Congress, and then when he's fighting for re-election, he'll say, um, or if he doesn't try to run again, Democrats will just say, well, you know, we couldn't do anything then, now you got to give it a, chan- a chance now, and they'll lose. So, either way, I think nothing for the next four years in terms of substantive anything, and after that, uh, Republicans will probably win again. So, Biden wins for now, but a pretty bleak outlook uh, on my part, I guess. Damn, I, I think I hear you. I, I'm, I'm a real. I'm hoping I can ha- like be a little more optimistic, which is just to say that if there is a Biden presidency, you know, the only thing that was kind of keeping me going and like pushing me in the last couple of weeks was the possibility of 
um, focusing our energy less on sort of reactionary anti-Trump messaging and more on like pushing liberals left. And I think there is there is like real possibility for that in the future, whether or not Biden makes big sweeping change like from his seat, which he probably won't. Um, you know, we saw like in, in the Massachusetts Senate race with Ed Markey, like that was a campaign that he won, like squarely because he he pushed himself left. Um, and, you know, I think Sunrise and organizers sunrise pushed, him pushed himself left. This is right. He didn't push himself. But he realized he, he, he was not exactly a leftist. He was progressive ish, but not a leftist. But he realized there's possibility and that he would only win if he went left. Um, so I'm hoping that this is a trend that like we'll continue to see and that with Biden in office, we can go back to like our Buttigieg takedowns <laughs> and focus our energy on um, on on the liberals and, and moving forward rather than just against Trump. Yep. And I I hope, you know, that fewer people die. I think Biden will have better COVID policy than Trump. And that is uh, that is nice. <laughs> um, and and I'm excited. You know, we we have a stronger left in the United States than we've had in any time in recent history. We have some incredible people going to Congress, um, Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. Cori Bush is a radical. I'm like, she is next level. I'm excited. Um, and and I'm hoping like that there's, you know, COVID permitting. We'll see what, what protest looks like in the coming um, weeks and months. But like I'm imagining like a, a sunrise takedown at Biden's inauguration where we occupy the stage and demand a Green New Deal. And like I think if we bring that momentum into 2020, um, that will be great. I just I, I want to like shout out a couple more organizers because I think that like we can't undersell the people who who have done the work um so ilhan omar and rashida Tlaib both expanded their turnout by a hundred thousand people since the last election and this is in minnesota and michigan so these states that aren't guaranteed blue and again they have more blue districts but like people got down they organized they know how to organize um i think another underreported story is that part of the arizona flip was a 200 percent increase from navajo nation um, so there was incredible organizing among indigenous people in Arizona. And so we were obviously grateful for them. And I think we just need to like double down on people like Americans, people here, we're learning how to organize, we're getting better and we're getting stronger. Um, and I, I hope that the Dems win and look like such fools in the process that people <laughs> um, turn to alternatives. And, and I think, you know, whereas in the past there haven't been alternatives, we have other leaders to look to. Um, and Biden might be the president, but I think people understand that, like, we have other leaders in the party who we respect more. And and I feel extremely grateful in these dark times that there is a left alive and well in this country, because um, that is hasn't been true recently. And that is something to definitely celebrate. Cheers to the end of electability. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. I would love to say the same, actually. I think there has been a beautiful even though even though let's say regardless of the result that happens tonight you know what happens in the next week regardless of who wins or whatever happens i think the fact that there has been so much grassroots organizing going and such a return let's say to the people from the bottom in the sense not only to like the people at the top having power but to us ordinary people trying to show our powers and trying to believe once again that we're indeed powerful has been an incredible incredible thing and it will last for a long time i mean it's only the beginning i mean uh, it's beautiful that we have two more elected people part of the crew can you remind me of their name actually because i forgot yeah of the squad sorry 
We got Ilhan Omar. We got Rashida Tlaib. We got AOC. We got Ayanna Presley. And now we're we're growing with some Jamal Bowman and Corey Bush. We got them. So six people in total. And I mean, there's so many grassroots organizations all over the world. And what happened in Portland and all over the country story and what happened in Portland is just beautiful. It just it just shows the parties that they do not actually represent maybe the interest of the many and of the ordinary people. And that there is another way possible. And I'm very curious about that. Honestly, I'm quite optimistic, but I'm very curious how what that will lead to in maybe 10 to five to 15 years from now. Yeah, I I have a quote to read from our good friend Grayson Lochner. Uh, he <laughs> is a Bernie organizer and just was elected state rep in Maine. He had a crazy race where the Bangor oh. Daily News called it for his opponent, and then the mail-in ballots came in and he won in a landslide. Uh, wow. He's a Dem socialist, and he was an organizer for People First Portland that got those ballot initiatives passed. And he says, I think the result of these referendums shows that people in Portland believe housing like an election. It's not so much of a commodity to be bought and sold at a profit, but something that should be accessible to everything. The fat everyone. The fact that we were outspent 20 to 1 and still prevailed is incredible and a testament to the power of organizers on the ground. We can defeat big money, but it takes work. That's an amazing quote. <laughs> we, we, we need to have this guy on the podcast. You need to link us up to him, well, honestly. We'll, we'll Grayson on. I'm sure he'd love to do it. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm going to bang on his door for as long as he actually, uh, until he does this podcast. <laughs> We're going to be this intrusive <laughs> because I think we need a voice like his. Uh, but guys, what do you think? I feel quite comfortable about what we talked tonight. I think we should actually... Not stop this political commentary here, but rather have it ongoing. I think our audience would love to have uh, all four of us again here, or at least the three of us, since you had amazing contributions, and expand because I'm sure, like one month from now, yeah. some shit will go down. I'm so sure about that. You know, there is there, the idea of the decent America. I don't think it exists anymore, and I just expect something else to happen, and we'll be back here regrouping, <laughs> talking about that. Definitely. Yeah. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good. Thanks for having us on, Mike and Stock. Oh, we uh, <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> oh Thanks God, for joining. Thanks wrong. for all the takes. Thank you so much, Grateful guys. as uh, always. Grateful. That's right. Uh, just to let everyone know, this was Left Porch, the podcast organized by some members of the Wooden Labor Alliance. If you want to hear more from us, follow us on any social on any on any podcast platform that you are using. We're literally everywhere, maybe apart from Pandora and Amazon. <laughs> because they want to steal our data or something like that. Yeah, they were quite greedy <laughs> about And I said, I'm not going to give them our artwork and stuff. So Spotify, Apple, Apple Podcasts, it works. It works. Go there if you want to listen to us. Uh, and thank you so much. We're going to be back next week, actually, hopefully with an episode about Italian student unions and Italian history in which we address uh, the way and the possibility of having an alternative student government in school that is politicized and that actually pushes for very left-wing reforms. But until then, I hope everyone has a good, good rest of the evening or a good rest of the day. So goodbye, goodbye, everyone.